Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As our climate changes, so does our forests, our ecosystems and our oceans. And creatures that live in these places have to adapt. And this week we're going to look into ways in which our environments have changed and ways in which animals have coped with that change, found new areas to thrive in, or how they've coped with that change in the past. All the way back in 1992, in the city of Rio de Janeiro, representatives from across the world, over 196 different nations were in attendance at the Earth Summit. And one of the things that they agreed there was the Convention on Biological Diversity. Over time, later in 1993, it was then ratified by pretty much every member of the United Nations, except for the United States. And the purpose of this treaty was to codify a few things. First, the conservation and protection of biological diversity, shortened to biodiversity, which basically means not just an area having life in it, but having a variety of life in it, protecting and preserving the ecosystem, and that includes all life present in that area. The next part of this treaty was to make sure that the components of these areas were then protected, and that fair and equitable sharing of these benefits, including from these genetic resources, were shared amongst the parties. And basically, this is just a part of the United Nations platform, and agreed to by many nations, to take good stewardship of the Earth and make sure that we're protecting life on it in all its forms, and not just ending up with a very narrow subset of plants and species that are left. And ever since 1992, we've designated different protected areas of significant biological diversity. And with those areas, we've done actions to try and keep them safe, to try and make sure that nothing erodes the life in those areas in all its forms. Now, since first being enacted and planned in 1992, the global extent of these protected areas covered under the Convention on Biological Diversity has almost doubled in size. Basically around 202,000 different areas earmarked across the world to say that these are significant areas of biological diversity that need protection. And that covers around 15% of the world's terrestrial area. To think about that, to put it into context... It's only 15% of the total coverage of the planet, but it's still significant nonetheless. And their aim is to cover roughly about 17% of the planet with a protected area by 2020. Now the problem is, like most things in our planet, it's divided up into regions, politics enters the situation, as well as different approaches to management of the zones, different objectives, and different guidelines, and even how well they're enforced. Now, some areas permit certain human activities, and some even suggest and allow sustainable resource extraction, although the primary goal of these areas is protected areas is to conserve nature. In a recent study conducted from researchers from the University of Queensland, as well as University of Northern British Columbia, have been examining over this 25-year history of the Convention on Biological Diversity, just how effective it's been, and how much impact these protection zones have had, and if the human footprint part has actually expanded or contracted or have had any impact at all. And this research was led by Kendall Jones of the University of Queensland. Now, whilst we have these protected areas designated out on maps, there's also something else that we need to model and map, and that is the human footprint. And basically, it shows that 
when you look at where humans exist and where humans have their activities and interact with their environment, there's about 32% of all those protected areas is actually got human encroachment in some form or the other. And this is human encroachment in land that is meant to be protected. And for protected areas that were created before the convention was ratified in 1992, 55% have since then, in the last 25 years, actually seen increases in human pressure or human encroachment into these zones, which suggests that for these existing areas which have been known about as being significant from a biological perspective, they were getting chipped away beforehand and then got protected. And even after that, humans have still chipped away at the edges of these zones. And edges is a bit of a misnomer here because that's creeping into almost 32% at some peak areas of these zones. These protection areas have an important purpose and to protect the plant life, animal life and you name it in that area. And they need to be well managed and run, especially if you want to save species that are on the brink of extinction. And if you allow these protected areas, which are trying to save species close to the point of extinction, to be encroached upon by humans, that reduces their chance of saving those species. So running these protected areas well and governing them effectively is essential. And one of the ways that you can measure this is not just looking at a designated area of land that is set as protected. You actually need to measure the biodiversity inside that protected area. And more often than not, governments are keen to overstate or overclaim the total land size area that's protected. But when you look at what's actually going on in that, you can see that most of the biodiversity in that area is in catastrophic decline, even though the land is, in theory, protected. So where has this protection approach worked well? Now, there's some really significant protection areas in Asia, Europe, and Africa, and they're places with huge growing human populations. Now, in areas that had strict biodiversity conservation objectives, where that then were managed and allowed human development, but in a sustainable way, they were subject to significantly lower levels of human pressure or encroachment. And some of the least impacted protected areas include Kaosima Wildlife Sanctuary in Cambodia, Maididi National Park in Bolivia, and the Isuzu Biosphere Reserve in Ecuador. And in those places, the World Conservation Society recognised the substantive risk and also the huge biodiversity benefit of these regions and put in place substantial investment and programs to protect them. And in those areas, there's actually been successful staving off of degradation. So when protected areas are well-funded, well-managed and well-placed, you actually see a pretty effective stop in biodiversity decline in those regions and you can actually see species coming back from the brink of extinction and that's really good news the problem is that's not all of these protected areas so how do we improve the management of these protected areas to make sure that they learn the lessons from the places where it's working well sometimes that means better enforcement better monitoring clearer boundaries or better approaches to engage with people to make sure that they understand or could come up with sustainable ways of interacting with those zones and resources. Because much as you want to say that, no, you can't go in there, if you don't help people find alternatives or sustainable ways to interact with the land, then it's not always going to be a challenge to try and stop human encroachment. So the important part is, whilst we have in place these treaties, and now I've had them for over 25 years, they're working well in some places, but there's still challenges to remain. And what we need to do is make sure we don't take our eye off the prize, because otherwise, 
even though we have designated areas of protection, they're still at risk of biodiversity decline. And this is some great work being done at the University of Queensland and the University of Northern British Columbia, recently published in the journal Science. Everywhere across the world has their own tales of animals showing up in places that they really shouldn't be. Here in Australia we have everything from crocs catching a wave with its fellow surfers to the ibis, the bin chicken of Sydney, and even the raptor prowling the streets of Cairns, sorry I meant cassowary, prowling the streets of Cairns going into people's houses. And the same story is told across the world, whether it be wolves going into urban environments, bears in the northern United States and Canada, and even things like otters and whales, mountain lions and orangutans ending up in interacting in what we would otherwise expect to be pretty much non-typical places for them to be. And in theory, this has been thought of as being, well, this is just the animals sort of running out of places to hide and thus encroaching on human behaviour. But a recent Duke University-led paper published in the journal Current Biology looked at it from a different approach. Now, for some creatures, like alligators and sea otters, as well as other large predators in both the marine and terrestrial species alike, it's not so much venturing into uncharted waters for these species searching for food desperately in a new way. It's more in fact like they're recolonizing ecosystems that used to be prime hunting grounds, long before humans started to decimate their populations, and also before scientists started following behind the human population wave and going, ooh, what species are here? A good way of putting it is from the one of the lead authors of the paper, Brian Silman, who's an associate professor of marine conservation biology at Duke University's Nicholas School of Environment. And he states, look, you can no longer chalk up a large alligator on a beach or a coral reef as an aberrant sighting. It's not an outlier, a short-term blip. It's pretty much the old norm, the way it used to be before we pushed these species onto their last legs and into these hard-to-reach refuges. Now, they're returning. And so how do they reach these conclusions? Well, they took data from a very wide range of studies conducted by governments, as well as scientific analysis and reports. And in particular, for some creatures like alligators, sea otters, river otters, grey whales, grey wolves, mountain lions, orangutan, bald eagles, and a lot of other large predators are now becoming a lot more abundant in what would previously classified as novel habitats than traditional ones. And the fact they're really, really successfully coping in these novel habitats, or rather, as this researchers put it, successfully returning to ecosystem and climate zones that were often long considered off-limits to them, simply because they were too stressful. That either means that they were very difficult to survive in, or there wasn't enough food sources for them in it, which is pretty much one of the, the standard paradigms of large animal ecology. Now, we think that just because we often see alligators in swamps, for example, that they love swamps or that sea otters do best in saltwater kelp forests, or orangutans need undisturbed forests. But if you look at the studies and see where populations are actually doing quite well and growing, they're actually adapting pretty well uh, and to these new and strange environments they find themselves in. And one of those reasons, for example, in 
alligators, uh, the ecosystem's changing and adapting and growing in new ways. Now, an alligator likes to eat things like stingrays or shrimps or horseshoe crabs and manatees. And that makes up pretty much 90% of their diet. So they can go from living in seagrass or swamps all the way to salt water and go where the food sources are. Now, where those food sources are is changing and, and moving around, not where we traditionally looked, but the top predators in these ecosystems are now reoccupying places off the top of the food chain or the food web that they used to have before. And it's got unusual benefits as well. For example, if you reintroduce sea otters into seagrass beds, well, what actually ends up happening is they, they protect the beds from being smothered by out-of-control algae. Now, that algae has been going out of control because there's been excess nutrient runoff from agriculture, farms, and from cities. Now, the otters, by chomping down on the Dungeness crabs, keep the algae population as well in check, and also the sea slugs that form the algae's front line of defense. Now, if you wanted to try and reconstruct or protect these habitats and prevent the nutrient runoff normally, it would cost heaps and heaps and heaps of money. Repopulating the area with sea otters, though, pretty cheap, and they thrive on their own, pretty much at a little to no cost. So it just goes to show that we need to take a very holistic view of the ecosystems and food webs that we're trying to protect. Sometimes when we see a change in population or see an adaption or somewhere behaving or growing in a place where we haven't thought they were previously, that may just be because we're used to them in our human context, used to understanding how animals behave in the world with humans around them. And we've missed a larger picture about the important roles a lot of creatures play in regulating the populations in ecosystems. That's why protecting biodiversity is important, because it's a lot easier to introduce some sea otters to protect the seabeds and seagrass, rather than having to re- manage and wall off and protect with civil infrastructure the seagrasses themselves. So this is a great study published at Duke University that helps take a larger and more nuanced view to the way species are adapting to our changing climate. Now, when you're studying the careful relationship between predator and prey and the balance of an ecosystem, you need to take the long view and you need to look at the whole food web. And researchers from the Michigan Technological University have released their annual winter study report, giving just a small update on their little study that they've been running on the Isle Royale National Park. This little study has only been going for about 60 years and involved thousands of citizen science volunteers who've helped the initial core group of scientists researchers who've been investigating over the last 30 years in a detailed study fashion. And basically, this study is looking at the populations of animals and wildlife in this little island forest. And it includes, well, a large number, a very large number of moose, which is growing in population to historic levels. And a mere population of predators of wolves, that is, of about two. For the third year in a row, researchers have been tracking the last pair of male-female pair of wolves on this island. Now, the pair, obviously, in a, such a small population size, are closely related, either a sibling or a father-daughter. 
And the wolves' population has been in a massive decline. The numbers started plummeting in 2009, declining by 88%, dropping from 24 wolves on this little island to two in that period. And generally, this island, historically, because we know, because we've been studying it for 60 years, there's been a variation in the wolf population between 18 and 27. But this pair of wolves is all they have left, and they're getting on in age. They're roughly around 8 to 10 years old. But the female has just continued to reject the male as a mate. Now, the problem is, the moose population, on the other hand, is going gangbusters, because they have no predator now. The wolves are in such a low number that they can't really effectively keep in check the moose population. Normally on this island, there's around seven to 1,200 moose, but at the moment, there's almost 1,500 moose on the island. That's a crazy increase, about 60% over 40 years. And what they're seeing is a population in transition. Now, the problem is, you might say, well, great, there's more moose and there's not many wolves. What, do you, what matter, does that matter for the forest? Well, it matters quite a lot because an unchecked moose population is going to have increasing demand on the forest resources, the national park itself. And that could lead to a population collapse or difficulties or, or even worse, a substantive loss of the environment of the forest. And that's one of the things to consider. It's not just a matter of preserving one species over the other when we talk about conservation. It's about protecting biodiversity. And in this instance, the predator-prey balance is way out of whack. So Michigan Technological University has been doing this study for a very, very long time and will continue to do so. But at the current point in time, it looks like the balance between predator and prey has tipped far too much into the prey's collar. And that poses risks, not only obviously for the predator population, but also for the food source and the environment on the island itself. This is some great research being done at the Michigan Technological University, as well as the army of citizen science volunteers and researchers who have been working on this project for the better part of 60 years. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So this week we've talked about conservation and how we can protect and manage our environment and look after biodiversity, whether that means helping balance the food web and make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.